The wheel of time turns, and podcasts come and pass, recording audacity files that become mp3s, mp3s that give rise to hot takes. But even the takes are long forgotten by the time a new episode comes out. In one podcast, called Nevermind the Trollocs by Some, a podcast about shows yet to come, a podcast about books long past, a download began. This download was not the beginning. There are no beginnings or endings when podcasting about the Wheel of Time. But it was a beginning. Hello, listener. Come, have a seat here by the fire. This is an episode-by-episode watch-along podcast for the new Wheel of Time TV show. Unless you're listening at some point after the inevitable reboot, in which case, this is a podcast about the old Wheel of Time TV show. But never mind that dark future, and never mind the Trollocs. Here's the podcast. listeners, here's the podcast. I'm Sarah, she, they pronouns, and um, the whole reason I went to costume school was because the Wheel of Time got announced and I really wanted to work on it, so that's my Wheel of Time shame fact um, for the day. Here are my co-hosts. <laughs> I'm glad we started with shame. Yeah. Hello, I'm Tom. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not ashamed to be here, and I'm not ashamed that I started reading Wheel of the Time. Wheel of the Time. I'm not ashamed to say that I started reading Wheel of the Time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to go with that now. (laughs) Welcome to Chaos Podcasting. I started reading Wheel of Time uh, in middle school and read just about everything that was out at the time, which was right up until it gets real slow and real boring. And then I dropped out. And I came back recently, and after watching this first episode, I'm really glad I did. I'm Nina, she, they pronouns. Uh, I read through all of Wheel of Time like five or six years ago, but was always hugely into fantasy novels. So very in keeping with my interests. And I'm Max. I use he, him pronouns. My Wheel of Time journey began at about 8.39 p.m. last night when I watched the first episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um. It's good, and it's fun, and I had a really, really good time watching it, and it's getting the gears in my head turning, comparing it, honestly, mostly to games I've played that I can probably make connections that have drawn inspiration from it. We'll talk about that. Mm, mm, mm. Um, fuck, I was going to make a pun, but I forgot about <laughs> it. God damn it. <laughs> uh, I got one for you, Vanilla Ice Sedai. Okay! <laughs> <laughs> Ice Ice Baby! Ooh, that's good. Okay. Um, we are gathered here today to talk about some wheelie times. Dearly beloved. Um, sorry? I said dearly beloved. You said we are gathered here today. <laughs> oh, right, okay. Um, to witness the union of um, two rival Gundam podcasts. <laughs> I wouldn't say rival. Listen, it's a sexy term. Fuck, where am I? <laughs> Right, yes. How, where, how this is going to go is um, we're going to use the recap listeners and then we will talk generally about the episode 
with the assumption that you haven't read the books. We're going to do sort of start out with like no spoilers. So if you are a listener who's just seen the show, if you're kidding Max here, then listen to all that. And after our episode, we're going to do a special sexy after dark risque version where we start talking about book shit. <laughs> Wheel of Time Nights. Mm. If you're here for the show and you're sort of planning on reading the books and you kind of don't want to like go into that, then just kind of stop listening. <laughs> you can always come back to it. Um, let's recap. All right, these recaps are going to be very short, very top level. We will get into the nitty gritty as we talk about the episode. Episode one. Long ago, men of power tried to defeat darkness, evil itself, and when they failed, chaos and destruction reigned. The man who led them is known as the Dragon and has been reborn into the world. No one knows where or who he might be, or she now. All they know is when, around 20 years ago. The Aes Sedai, a society of powerful magic users, are among those searching for the Dragon Reborn. Our story follows Moraine and her personal guard, Lan, but there are others. A group of women in red hunt men of magical ability. When men touch the source of magic, they go mad, and these women find and execute them. Moraine and Lan travel to the two rivers, where four different people could fit the prophecy of the Dragon Reborn. In a small village there, the day before the festival of Beltine, a young woman, Egwene, comes of age. Tam and his son Rand bring Brandy to town, where the tavern is already noisy and full of celebration. Rand drinks and gambles with his best friends, Matt and Perrin, while they discuss rumors of war in the south. Rand and Egwene have been sweet on each other since they were children, but the village Wisdom, Nynaeve, believes Egwene could train with her, and Wisdoms never marry. A dark figure arrives on horseback in the middle of the night, hooded and spooky. The next day, the night of the festival, dancing and merrymaking are interrupted by a pack of Trollocs, massive horned monsters. Much of the village is destroyed and many are killed before the Trollocs are defeated, mostly by the intervention of Moraine and Lan. The next morning, while the village focuses on healing the wounded and repairing the damage, torchlights appear up the mountain, more Trollocs on the way. Although Moraine still isn't sure which of the four, Egwene, Rand, Matt, or Perrin, is the Dragon Reborn, it's clear that the armies of the Dark One will keep up their own search. The village will never be safe as long as these young people stay. So they all set out together toward a future that is not at all what they had planned. And she says the thing at the end, and I was doing the Leonardo DiCaprio point at the screen. <laughs> I did the. <laughs> I was like, that's what Sarah said during when we were the pilot we recorded. I think Christine has, my flatmate has a picture of me just like fully dabbing at the screen, <laughs> like in the middle of the living room. <laughs> Do we have like general thoughts, like thumbs up, thumbs down, th th thumbs wiggling? I liked it a lot. Yeah, I way better than I thought it was going to be. I mean, obviously going in with no expectations, I feel like it did a good job as a pilot in that I could pretty easily follow along, like understand the state of the world. Like, I mean, I did rewatch it. This isn't, you know, I've, I've seen it twice already, but even like mm -hmm. had I been going into the recording, only watched it once, I feel like I'd, it, they still did a good job making everything seem very sensible despite like 
a lot of scenes is like cutting back and forth between character perspectives, but like they're kind of doing a good job of keeping everyone in the same general area. So you're able to follow the action pretty well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It didn't leave me as lost as I thought it would, you know, entering a brand new fantasy world for the first time. Mm. Yeah, like I think I had very high expectations of this, mainly because I've I had actually seen some clips from the first episode whenever um we went to MCM Comic Con in London, like they had that whole booth and you like could go in and see clips. I we went in and they showed us a little bit of the like the battle, the Beltine Winter Night battle scene, and they showed us Egg being pushed off a cliff and like some other bits like that. So I think like that really, really like raised my expectations. Um and it just kind of those were like the three sort of best parts of the episode. <laughs> so I think I was expecting a little bit more than what I got from the episode. It's not that I was disappointed because I was still like, like really hyped, fucking loved it. But like, I was expecting it to be very different from what I've come to expect from fantasy TV. And it kind of wasn't. It kind of like fit quite neatly into fantasy TV, hmm. at least in this first episode anyway. And okay, yes, I did watch the other three. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, you know, keep quiet. <laughs> I'm not saying anything. I, I, I didn't see it. <laughs> I went into this not expecting it to be good. Um, I guess I should qualify that a little bit. When they first announced the show, I really thought it was going to be terrible. Um, I, w- I was convinced there was no way it was going to be good. You know, I'm not going to say that this is like an unfilmable series of books or something, because that's absurd. But it has a lot of challenges to it that I would have expected to cause them a lot of problems at every stage. Casting, writing, filming, production, marketing, the whole thing. Um, and so my expectations were low until the trailers started hitting. And those looked way better than I was expecting. And that's when I started getting interested in the show. And uh, that's also coincidentally when Sarah suggested that we should make a podcast about it. Uh, so, yeah, I I went in with low expectations and was very pleasantly surprised. Mm, mm. In a weird way, a, a good portion of my enjoyment or lack of enjoyment of a show has to do with like how many moments are there where I'm like, no, that was a bad story decision they just made. <laughs> and I had very few of those in this first episode. I think really just one. Mm. One big one. One big least. one. But other than that... I was like, okay, this feels coherent. I feel like I like what they're doing. I'm interested. I want to watch the next episode. Good job. I should say in the like first minute, I was I was worried mm. in the first minute when, when Maureen starts doing that opening monologue. Mm. I was like, this just feels like low rent Lord of the Rings. Like yeah. they're trying to do the Galadriel opening, but they're just not pulling it off. Mm. And also... We're going to very consciously try not to keep referencing the books that three of us have read, but the opening to the books is very different and uh, real powerful. And so I kind of missed having that. And I think I know like why they changed it. Mm. Um, and I think probably on balance it was the right decision, but I was real worried there for a second. Yeah, I think not to go into any specifics, but like, because we could talk about changes from the books, but like in general, every change that they made, I'm with and behind, and like I can see why they're doing it, and I like why they're doing it. So, like in general, I'm like, yeah, change the books, <laughs> change the books. My final message. 
<laughs> All right. Well, I'm definitely going to argue with you about one of those. <laughs> we, okay, which one we need to get into? Yeah, yeah okay. now that you've foreshadowed it for us, let's just dive in. Perrin's wife. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the real, the lesbian in the room. Yeah, well... <laughs> you keep saying that. <laughs> I keep saying Elaborate. this. Okay, okay. Mainly, this is because... I watched this last night with my flatmate, and whenever Perrin's wife comes on screen, we start like hooting and hollering at the screen, being like, that's a fucking lesbian. I don't know if I genuinely believe that like his wife is a lesbian, but like, listen, I'm just saying that like her introductory scene is of her, like, first of all, sleeveless. Second of all, she's like working a forge, and I think I'm just on TikTok too much where like lesbians do forgery forgery like smithing <laughs> and i'm like oh i guess they probably do forgery on there too <laughs> and like she's got a lot of earrings and like kind of like an upraised side hair vibe and like just me and my flatmate are like ah, gay gay sarah those are stereotypes you're indulging in stereotyping oh no they absolutely are um also she was very hot <laughs> also she's pregnant and married to a man wait was she pregnant the lingering camera oh. shots of her belly with both of them holding it with their hands yeah damn okay so i don't think it's uncalled for to mention that in the books he's not married at this juncture so amazon has a little like trivia section that you hover over it and it comes up and like even the trivia says that his parents not married in the books. Like, So at first it's like, oh, this is an interesting decision. They're introducing this new character. She seems really cool. There's this complicating like, oh, is he, does he have a crush on Egwene even though he's married to this other person? Like how did that happen? And then he accidentally kills her and it's like, oh, this was just... The parent from the books is, like, too nice and normal, and we need to give him some shitty baggage to deal with. I feel like I can... Again, no context from my end. I feel like you could make an argument that they gave him a wife in order to maybe... Again, this is, like, maybe a future prediction, but, like, to contrast everyone with Rand when they're, like, leaving the village at the end... Of everyone kind of has a pretty big thing they're either leaving behind or dealing with. And if Perrin didn't have a wife, he would just kind of be leaving. But now he's leaving because he has a dead wife that he killed. And like now Rand is kind of the only one who's just like, oh, yeah, my dad's fine. Bye. And everyone <laughs> else is like, you know, like Egwene kind of loses this future promise of being wisdom. And Matt has to, like, say goodbye to his sisters because, like, he's basically their actual parent because his parents can't parent. So I feel like that could be done in service to, like, future tension by having Rand be the only one who isn't really having some sort of baggage to deal with and carry out of the village. Mm, mm, I mean, I see mm. what you're going for there. But, like, the moment Perrin's marriage was announced... In my head, and I think to Nina, as we were watching it together, I was like, I really hope they don't give him dead wife motivation. <laughs> like, this is such a common thing in stories. And like, in our regular lives, we're all Gundam podcasters, so we're very familiar with dead wife motivation. Yep. <laughs> like, this is, this is such a terrible, old, but also very common trope mm -hmm. to be like, oh, and now the man is motivated because his beloved woman has been wounded, imperiled, or killed. And I was like, I really hope they're not going to do that. And then I'll admit they found a interesting way to mm -hmm. do it, possibly the most interesting way to do it. <laughs> yeah. But I don't I wish they hadn't done it at all. Yeah. Like 
again, the moment she was introduced, I like turned to Kristen and I'm like, oh, she's gonna fucking die, huh? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I w- would have been very surprised if uh, Lila had survived this episode. Is it Lila? Um, I thought it was Ayla. It's, Lila, it's Layla, L A I L A. All right. Oh, yes, because I started singing Eric Clapton at some point. <laughs> Thank you, Amazon X Ray. Can just like move my mouse and see, oh, that's what the character's called. Okay, cool. Easy. And they give her a ton of characterization in this first episode. Yeah. yeah. She's a character. She's like, I, I want to know more about this person. I want to see her arc. I was really, when she's, because you're introduced to her, right? And it's because uh, I think Nynaeve mentions to parents, like, hey, your wife is working the forge all alone. That's a pretty tough job to do by yourself. Go check on your wife, homeboy. Bro, you left your wife, bro. This feels like Nynaeve doing the wisdom thing, right? Yeah. It's her responsibility to look after all of these relationships. And she's clearly extremely agitated working this forge because Perrin even mentions to her, like, hey, you weren't at the ceremony earlier. Like, maybe the only woman in town who wasn't, it seems. Like, they had a really big group. And and I was thinking, like, oh, is there some sort of tension there? But, like, that doesn't really ever get explored because she's just kind of introduced and then bye. Dead wife. That's why I wondered if Perrin maybe has a really obvious crush on Egwene. Because there are a couple of shots that seem to show him, like, staring at her after she comes back from her ceremony. And, like, hesitating to leave because he wants to talk to her and hasn't gotten to talk to her yet. And his wife knows. And that's why, like, no, she's not going to his crush's fucking coming Mm -hmm. of age ceremony. (laughs) (laughs) And I, yeah, I mean, this is, like, everything they've done with this suggests that Perrin and Layla were not particularly, like, it seems like Perrin probably knocked her up and then they got married because that's what you do and Perrin is the good, responsible boy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. This is Matt saying, oh, you're married now. Your life is over, dude. Mm. Again, like, you know, because she looks like a TikTok blacksmith, like... My sort of interpretation, I was like, oh my god, like, she's just, like, married to a man who she's not sexually attracted to, and, like, this is the source of all the tension in their relationship. Um, But, like, you know, whatever the reason for it is, it's, like, extremely clear that, like, she doesn't like, well, she maybe likes her husband, but she does not love her husband. Yeah. I don't know that he loves her either. He's just very dutiful. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. It's it's not a shotgun running, it's a crossbow wedding. (laughs) <laughs> they they use longbows in the two rivers right there yeah yeah longbow wedding so what wedding yeah because the whole it was the whole i love you i know thing it's like okay star wars we hang have on, to explain on, what a shotgun wedding is oh oh you don't oh god i haven't had to do this for you for a while huh sarah are you not familiar with the term shotgun wedding i've never heard this oh my god <laughs> apparently this is a this is a u.s uh euphemism it's just when uh, some young people fool around and get pregnant and their parents force them to marry, the shotgun being the implied violence if you try to run away. Ah, okay. The joke being that at the wedding, the father of the bride is standing directly behind the groom with a shotgun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. Um, Which actually reminds me of something I noted that like we see everyone else's parents, we do not see parents. Which is... I'm going to stop talking about the books. Yes, that's interesting. (laughs) And, you know, they could have given Perrin a different set of motivations. Mm -hmm. They could have made Layla his sister, who he accidentally kills. Mm -hmm. That would also Mm -hmm. suck. Um, But that would not have the same sort of gross feeling to it. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I watched the show twice to get ready for this podcast because I'm a professional. And... 
on the second watch through, knowing how she dies, every scene that she's in is just like, oh, she seemed so cool. I wanted more of this character. It, it feels like exploitative almost. Yeah. I kind of almost like expect her to like come back from the dead in future episodes and like have more story. Like, is there going to be flashbacks? Mm. Like, will we get to see more of her story? I mean, is she not actually dead? I, I assume she is dead, but I'm I'm staring at that corpse mm. on screen the whole time. Like, is she actually dead? Is this like a cinema fake out? Is she going to get healed yeah. off screen? Yeah. They can have her show up again at the most dramatic moment, which is to say once Perrin falls for somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like the one thing about this that I like I kind of respect is that, you know, they did the uh fridging a woman to create male man pain thing, but they like instead of making it less, they just turned it up more by making him kill her by accident. And I'm like, okay, I actually, yeah, that, 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 that's, I respect that. Like, yeah, yeah. making it more actually makes it better in this context. Mm. They found the most interesting way to do it. Yeah. 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 Like, it is good characterization for Perrin. Mm-hmm. Like, one thing that this episode does really well, I think, is it characterizes all of the kids, really all the main characters, super well and it's a big cast like it's a challenge to do that Mm -hmm. but i feel like after one episode like i know Rand's deal i know matt's deal i kind of know moraine's deal i know egwin's deal like you you pick it up pretty quickly Mm -hmm. and you get that like that berserker rage that is lurking within perrin yeah the sound design is really good for that yeah and then you see him afterwards like and in other scenes even before it happens, but he's kind of like hunched in on himself. He feels like he's a he's like a kid whose body grew too big too quickly and is like kind of afraid of his own strength. And of course he is, because then you see him do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This definitely feels like a kind of thing that they're going to do a good job with like calling back to as the series goes on too, because like that's such a bigger like pain point for him than, you know, like we'll certainly get Egwene having conversations about Nynaeve and all that, but like with Perrin, I feel like it's, like, completely elevated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, he hasn't told anybody. That's true. Yeah, he just brings her in. And it's like, oh, she's dead. He doesn't say anything. Right. In in the middle of the Trolloc attack, no one would question it. No one would think for a second that she was killed by somebody else, by him. I personally don't think I could say anything more about this without going, like, towards spoilers. Mm-hmm. Well, then let's move on. I think yeah. we've yeah. roughly covered it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the casting is really good. I was just talking about the characters. Let's talk Gosh. about the casting for a second. It's it's great. Um, I feel like Moraine and Lan are picture perfect. Exactly what I pictured in my head for those characters stepped out of my imagination onto screen. Mm-mm. I guess I imagined Lan looking older and more grizzled, but I do like the casting a lot. I was expecting more scars. Like they do the <laughs> they do the naked scene in the tub, and he does have some like trophy scars on his shoulders. Can we please mm-hmm. talk about the milk scene. I like the milk scene. I thought it's, it was great. It's so good. It's got the same energy as the Witcher opening I like tub scene. That fucking scene. <laughs> it's like got the same energy. You mean the scene in the Witcher where he's lying in the bath and he you know spreads his Get, legs kind of thing. Feet picks. Uh-huh. What got me about that scene is I, I feel like that 
spoke a lot about Moraine's and Lan's relationship in that it seems entirely platonic. They're just buddies taking a bath together. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because what Lan's like her retainer, essentially, right? Like he's like her bodyguard of sorts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously she can take care of herself, but like that scene, it was like, they're all like, you know, they're stretching out and everything, but it's not like they're doing it like erotically at each other. They're just like pal sharing a bath, which I was like, oh, like I was really impressed by that. You know, it's like I... I never really, like, I did, when I first saw them, I didn't expect them to, like, ever have a thing. But, like, having seen that scene, I really liked it because it kind of, I guess, goes to show just, like, you know, they're at that level of comfort with each other. Mm. And even going to the Trolloc fight, too, when they're fighting, like, they seem perfectly aware of where each other is on the battlefield. Like, where they can, like, they, they know their position and, like, you know, Morgan can, like, duck out of land sword swing without even seeing where he is because, like, they're mm. just, I guess, that close. Which, like... I feel like the the fun milk bath scene really was like a good foreshadow of that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's so rare to see in cinema a scene in a bath with a man and a woman that isn't meant to be taken sexually. Mm-hmm. And this totally isn't. I, I'm concerned that people will take it sexually. People will take anything sexually, though. <laughs> yeah. I, I just think, again, it's because I was like... Because I was watching with my flatbed and she was like, oh, like they're fucking. And I was like, no, they're not. (laughs) But I don't know, like. I do have in my notes, like, are people going to ship Lan and Moraine? And then a bunch of question marks. Yeah, it's hard not to come back to the books again because their relationship was one of the things that I liked a lot about the books. And the fact that it is platonic is one of the things I liked so much about it. Mm, mm. (laughs) And so... I liked going into the show and being like, ah, yes, we are establishing that that is also true in the show. Great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I can see how people might interpret it differently. I think also a lot of that's just cultural, like Hmm. hard to wrap your head around a culture so different from the one you live in as to Mm -hmm. have like men and women bathing together who aren't romantically or sexually involved. Yeah, yeah. Like I am, I am very glad that we got to hear your read of that first, Max. And yeah. that you like you got that they were just bros. Yeah, I I don't get things. So the fact that I got it, I'm getting. I'm the litmus test here. I'm I'm the I'm baby. I'm coming in knowing not not a damn thing. So mm. it's good. Like they they just do a good job. Like just with pretty much everyone. Like the characterization. I feel like you really do get such a good idea of who everyone is. Like what they're like at like just a first couple glances. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's good. And I like that the water was milk. <laughs> I mean, I assume that it's just that ah, the water in the two rivers is that color, but it was kind of funny that it was milk. <laughs> Another way the show kind of like how close Lan and Moraine are is that like how he's like, um, he's like hinting at her. He's like, oh, water's, water's not hot enough. Like he's not going to outright say, hey, can you use your source magic to make the milk hot? But like he's like, <laughs> water's not hot enough. And like she like indulges him in like a very playful, friendly way. Which, which like, mm-hmm. is another way of showing, like, yeah, they're so close that, like, he can kind of, like, be almost whiny about it. And she's like, oh, classic Lan. Right. Because mm. I don't think he says anything in front of anyone else. Like, he only really talks to her this episode. Yeah. yeah. He introduces her when they walk into the inn, and that's kind of it. Yeah. That, sorry, that that part, when he walks into the inn and he just, like, stands there like the Craig emoji. <laughs> yes, yes. I was like, oh, it's Aragorn. <laughs> just awkwardly looming there. No, it's it perfect. It was really funny. Yeah, it's so good. He's just, like, a weird, alienated outsider, just, like, mm-hmm. standing there, trying to look intimidating. 
<laughs> just dripping. Yeah. And it, it goes to show, too, how much, like, the Aes Sedai is feared and respected in the world. That, like, there's this weird, tall, dripping, wet stranger who walks in, and he's not the one they're kind of afraid of. It's, like, the very nice-looking woman who kind of walks in behind him. They're like, uh-oh. Mm-hmm. And you can totally tell, like, the the innkeeper who, like seems so nervous in this and then she very carefully loudly says Moiraine Sedai mm-hmm. so that everybody in the room knows the stakes yeah yeah because like I did like I did think that line felt really weirdly delivered but now I'm like okay like I it would make sense if that was on purpose she was like Moiraine Sedai mm-hmm. <laughs> we got one wow cool ring everyone come look at his ring she has <laughs> wow there's a couple of scenes that have that kind of awkwardness in the dialogue um Mm -hmm. the other one is when moiraine is talking to nynaeve when she's cleaning the pool moiraine is like people say you're too young to be the wisdom but i disagree i think you're strong and like it sounds so awkward but then you realize she's just leading nynaeve in the conversation until nynaeve tells her how old she is like, that's yeah. the one thing Moraine wants to know from this conversation. And yeah. she just has to keep Nynaeve talking and get her madder and madder until she says something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I like, it's, it's not really a thing at the moment, but I really like how that scene sort of establishes that the, like, antagonism between Moraine and Nynaeve has, like, a basis in, like, class. Yeah. Because, you know, Nynaeve tells the whole story about how, like, her mentor went to the white tower and was kicked out for not being high class enough and i was like yes academic elitism it happens everywhere it's the white tower sarah not the ivory tower and like the the, the opening line where moraine is like oh you're cleaning and then he's like cleaning mm-hmm. is cool actually fuck you <laughs> they really like that stuff excited to see more oh wait no sorry Nanif died she's dead um, she's she's dead. Don't 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 worry about it. Yeah, that's another one of my predictions. <laughs> I'm very much one of the people when watching shows, which I feel like it's just kind of a way Gundam's brain poisoned me. If I don't see someone die and everyone's like they're dead, I'm like, are they? <laughs> and Dynee was very clearly carried off. Like she wasn't like yeah. attacked by a troll. A troll just kind of came in, like picked her up, was like, all right, time to go. Dragged her away by her braid. Yeah. Oh, no. So I'm. <sighs> let's say I wouldn't be surprised if she just popped back up one day. Mm-mm. We're kind of on naive talk. Do we have more naive things to say? Only semi-related, but I did like how racially diverse the casting is yes. and how mm. it's not like a white European two rivers. Mm-hmm. It's something different. Yeah. As good as the casting is, it does feel very, I guess, I guess it's probably maybe a deliberate contrast with Rand being like, the, the the widest person there who's like ostensibly like the main character i guess he's also like a foot taller he's, than everybody else yeah he's redheaded he's got like anime protagonist hair disease he also has comfy <laughs> sw- he has comfy sweater disease as well hey two rivers wool is the finest in the world <laughs> they don't Listen. have as, they don't have as many sheeps to make that wool now Oh god, god that, that, like that fucking scene where like Lan walks into like an upside down teardrop shape of dead mutilated sheep corpses. <laughs> I wrote it as the sheep apostrophe. I thought it was half of a yin yang symbol. That's like what I truly think, but sheep apostrophe is very funny in my notes. <laughs> well, I I thought it was Sarah spoilers, mm, but that's book Could spoilers. Be. Um, 
I'm going to have to bleep that out. <laughs> um, we won't bleep fuck, but we'll bleep... <laughs> yeah, I was very shocked at how like graphic this episode was. Um, like that scene really like got me and like a lot of and you know there was a lot more like um like drinking and like the alcoholism of Matt's mum mm-hmm. and like the like occasional like nudity like Daniel Hattie's butt was there like it was a lot more like like I had a higher thingy rating than I was expecting. Mm-hmm. It felt graphic but not gratuitous. I agree like, with that. Yeah. More so with the gore and the violence. It's shocking, yeah. Like, you see the sheep apostrophe, but, like, you kind of get the, with the way he talks to about it to Moraine that's, like, a very, you know, a precursor to violence. And with the whole fight, it, it's, like, there's blood being spilled, but it's not... It doesn't feel quite like it's there for shock value. I mean, the bloodiest mm-hmm. part is when Perrin's going ham on a Trolloc and then gets his wife. Mm-hmm. And it's not like you're watching Game of Thrones or something where it's like, let's just cut someone's head off because it looks badass. Mm. It feels like it's there. I mean, it, it's it's very grounding, but it didn't feel like... Like, I wasn't watching it. I was like, well, that's too much. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it felt like kind of the right level for, I guess, this level of show, I guess I'm saying. Yeah. This is a fight scene that has to feel horrifying, right? Mm. It can't be exciting because these are a bunch of, like, peaceful villagers mm-hmm. who have never seen violence worse than a fist fight uh, and suddenly they're being invaded by these giant monstrous Trollocs. Mm. I think it was really well put together, really well directed um, to be horrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because they let that horror run for like the first third of the the fight part, when they start fighting back, um, when Moraine starts channeling and then, like, the biggest pop moment for me is, like, when the women's circle with the hay yeah. rakes take down the trolley. That was fantastic. Like, Fucking Days Conger epic moments. It's a girl boss type show. It really is a girl boss type show. For me, the most gruesome moment in the whole episode is when Moraine first channels in the fight and, like, dismembers that trolley, mm-hmm. tears it apart, and all its guts come out. But that felt really appropriate to me because we're supposed to be horrified by what she can do. Mm, mm. And they hold back the channeling. Like there are moments earlier in the show when someone is channeling um, with the red sisters, with that guy that they capture and Moraine when she heats the bath up, but they don't show us the, like the weave. They don't show us the flows of, of the different parts of the, the source until that moment Mm -hmm. Mm. and that that really like gives it a lot more power yeah and like you know we only see her twist a trollic in half with with like the sword magic once everything else is her kind of like yeeting fireballs or throwing bricks but i feel like they did a good job i guess like showing the cost of magic not not just like we see moraine get like tired and pass out after fighting that's like kind of what i expected but they also did a good job of like showing how Moraine kind of did more damage to the town than the Trollocs did. Like, when she summons lightning, she also, like, zaps their really nice tree in the courtyard. And then when, like, the rest of the army shows up, she basically has to, like, use the entire inn as ammunition. So, like, after the fighting, like, a ton of buildings are destroyed, but, like, a lot of that was her, too. It's like, yeah, she can fight back, but, like... When she fucking... At the end, when she collapses to her knees at the exact same time that the house is collapsing. <laughs> and, like, land runs I, over and... 
I lost my fucking shit. It's so good. I mean, you want to talk great details. Lan jumping on her, and you can see he covers her mouth yeah. with his hand. It's so good. I Oh my god. Like, that whole fight scene, like, I brought up, like, the sort of, I guess, gore, because, you know, I am... I have concerns that people will compare it to Game of Thrones because everything fucking gets compared to Game of Thrones. Don't be concerned, they will. You just expect they already it. are. <laughs> they already are. Uh, like, I don't... Look at this shit. This shit fucking rules. Mm-hmm. This is good, yeah. When I saw the um, sheepostrophe there, it was like immediately... I think we lost Sarah. Okay. I was just losing my shit at the word sheepostrophe. <laughs> Keep going, please. <laughs> it immediately reminded me of... In Game of Thrones, they would do a lot of similar like symbols made from the like viscera of dead, mm-hmm. usually people or animals. Um, and then how in Game of Thrones they just let that plot thread go, yeah. never followed up on it. Uh, so you know, I can I can see where those comparisons come from. Well, and to kind of like address that a lot of critics i think are already looking at this this show as oh and amazon wants its own game of thrones right like they want a pop culture hit that lasts seven seasons and that everyone obsesses about uh but we were talking right after watching this episode the first time i actually think wheel of time the books have the potential to be so much more like fun and interesting as a show than the game of thrones books did do mm-hmm. and I like the Game of Thrones books too, but I just think this has a lot more potential to be fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, looking back on them, I feel like basically every problem that the Wheel of Time books have, and boy, do they have some problems. Game of Thrones also has those problems, and Game of Thrones is just so dreary. It's not fun in the same way that Wheel of Time is or can be fun. Hmm? what what was that sarah that's something that did kind of stick out to me like yeah we have this terribly gruesome fight scene where people die like you know a significant proportion of the town is dead afterwards but like before that like the vibe of the show it it doesn't like it doesn't feel terribly bleak like we have these you know these world ending stakes of like the lord of darkness or whatever is returning we have to find the only person who can stand against him but like it doesn't it doesn't feel like this incredibly dour dire quest like it feels like there is room for like energy and even like very well placed humor like with the little strawberry scene it 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 feels like they kind of know how, what balance to give everything so it's not all like you know Game of Thrones, everyone's just really grumpy all the time. Mm, mm, mm. I'm sorry, I was, I was, I, I kind of, we were getting into talking about the absolutely poggers fight scene, and then I kind of derailed us by bringing up Game of Thrones. That's okay. Yeah, don't do that again. Can we book, <laughs> what? I said, don't do it again. I won't. I will. I will never <laughs> say. You know, listen, soon, once I start working for HBO, they'll make me sign an NDA, and then I will legally not be allowed to talk about Game of Thrones like, ever again. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> we'll have to hold even like double accountable. Um, can we go back to talking about the cool fight scene? Yes. Because I feel like there's more we have to say about it. I was really worried about how they were going to portray the use of magic in this show. And I really like how they did it, actually. I think it looks mm-hmm. really, really cool. Because <laughs> the first time we see magic, it's when those red cloak women 
kill that one guy in the very beginning. And you don't see anything. Yeah. So at first I was like, oh, is this like Lord of the Rings? Like with the battle in the first movie between Gandalf and Saruman where they're just kind of like spinning each other around with like no effects or anything. But then when you actually see the effect, it's really cool. It, it, it's like um, it's like you extinguish a candle and it's like that wisp of smoke that everything kind of feels like. It's like this, like this really cool ethereal. It's a very interesting effect that I like because it's like. It doesn't seem that complicated to do either, like as far as like like the technical level of the CG it is, but it works because it's just so simple. It's like just cool wisps that's like, yeah, that looks very much like what I expect magic to look like. Mm, mm. I think at first I wasn't completely sold. Like the the first in the first like um red cloak scene when they make the cliff fall down, like it was like 30 seconds into the show, like, my brain wasn't ready for it, and, like, my instinct was like, oh, that looks bad, like, oh, I don't know about that now. But, like, you know, once it actually, like, got into it and kind of got into, like, the fight scene where there's, like, all the movement and motion and, like, it's just so much more, I was like, oh, this looks so fucking cool. Mm -hmm. That just goes to show that, really, it's not what you're showing but how you're showing it that makes these things feel cool. You know, so much of what makes that fight scene work is that, like, yeah, Moraine is, like, casting and she's doing some, you know, body movement that goes along with it. But the camera, the way the camera is set up, the way the Trollocs are moving, the way Lan is moving around her, like, Mm. it's that interplay of Lan and Moraine, everyone's Mm -hmm. movement together, that makes the fight scene work so well. It's it's a team effort. And even going going back to the first scene with Magic with the Red Cloak Ladies... If you were paying a little bit less attention, you could be forgiven for thinking when she's like, stop, like she was telling the guy to stop because the cliff was collapsing because the camera cuts over to that cliffside and it's like already collapsing when it like blinks over. So it doesn't even look like she did anything. It looks like it was a coincidence, like with Moraine, like if they had like put that flicked the camera back there a second earlier and showed the clip beginning to collapse, I'd be like, oh, she did it with magic. But like, as that scene's portrayed, it doesn't even look like she did it herself. But with Moraine, everything feels so deliberate. Like she's choosing where to fling her spells and everything that makes it feel that much more like impactful. Mm. Like, yeah, because like with the first scene, like that first scene with the like Red Sisters, like it feels like a like almost like an afterthought or something. Like it, it's like a weirdly kind of feels sort of like like a last minute scene where they're like, oh shit, like, oh no, we forgot to, we need to put in something that like explains to the audience that like when men channel the source, like it makes them go mad and it's bad and people have them down for that. But we got to put this in quick. And it's like, just kind of like thrown at you there. Um, But it just like, whenever we get to later and it's like the main scene and like they have thrown like everything they have at the, this scene. And it's, it's good. It's good. <laughs> Credit where it's due. While that first opening scene did feel kind of rough in a couple of places, I really liked what they did with the the older guy who isn't there. Yeah, yeah. Although actually, in the same way that Max could have interpreted this, the the like um, cliff as falling down before, I for like a second I thought that the women had erased his friend from existence. Yeah, and I was like, wait, what? Like, did they just? Huh? And then I kind of was like, oh, right, he, he, it's a fight club situation here. Um, <laughs> it's fantasy Tyler Durden. <laughs> she does say, like, ah, the madness has already taken him. Yeah, yeah like, it was that point that I was like, oh, right, it's fantasy Tyler Durden. <laughs> um, speaking of her, like, this stuff she said, what was the line? 
Oh, oh. You make it filthy. This power is meant for women alone. When men touch it, you make it filthy. So the line was, this power, it's meant for women and women alone. And when you touch it, you make it filthy. And I was just like, this sounds like a JK Rowling tweet. I was like, oh, uh oh. Well, but also one of the things that leaves me nervous about the show is the books have a lot of gender essentialist stuff to them. And I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to reveal at this point. Uh, yeah. and, how, and how the show is going to deal with that now in today's you know, climate uh, is making me nervous. And I think establishing that this scary woman who's like men ruin magic uh, is villainous and we're supposed to be terrified of her and think she's bad. Mm. It's like, okay, so we're taking some steps in that direction. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, you know, this is going to be like the biggest girl boss show ever. Like it already is. Like it's <laughs> like 90% girl bossery. And uh, you yeah, know, this is every, sometimes every... you need a bit, you need a lot of girl bossery. Yeah. I just, I just had the realization that like, that whole cultural moment that Daenerys had, like, the women from the show could have the same thing. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. Um, Maybe we don't want this to be the next Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there should never be another Game of Thrones. We definitely don't, because Game of Thrones, the ending was so bad. Nobody, mm. like, talks about it or remembers it fondly to this day. So, <laughs> yeah. Let's not do that. Luckily, Wheel of Time didn't have any problems with its ending, right? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> before we move on from talking about the fight scene, I do want to like mention the music in it is really good. The like, um, like choral singing. The like choral singing and the, like guitar moments and like, um, like the guitar kind of like builds and starts like noodling around when like the most like epic stuff is happening at which point like you know Nynaeve gets dragged off by a bridge Perrin kills his lesbian wife Maureen gets knifed and a dog rick ugly moogly goes to shit and it's just like a really like the intensity of everything is so like built up by the music and like in general the music and sound design is really good yeah it's definitely music you notice though it's not music that like blends into the scene it really sticks out and in a good way I think mm. And not even just, like, the music in that battle, either. A piece of music that really stuck out to me was when the Beltine Festival began. Like, the the, the band there likes, like, oh, let's give, you know, the, the souls who are returning, let's give them something to listen to or whatever. And they play this song, and it's like... It doesn't feel like what you'd expect to hear from sort of, you know, some backwater podunk fantasy village. Like there's this, these really nice guitar chords being played and you hear, I think, like a harmonica in there. And it's just this really nice, pleasant song that like, you know, I feel like a lot of times you'd expect, oh, they're, you know, they're going to be just some guitar strumming and clapping like medieval music. But it feels like a, like an actual song that they're playing. And it's like this very nice thing to hear. And like, I feel like that is one thing that Game of Thrones cultural impact kind of was a positive force in that, like, I feel like a lot of people can agree the music of Game of Thrones is like, has always been really, really good. And I feel like that's kind of, you know, shows are trying to be the next Game of Thrones, but I feel like the music is something that some shows forget. And like, you know, Witcher does that really well, like the Netflix versions, like, you know, music makes things that much more impactful. And like, yeah, you can have a good battle music, but when like everything else is good music too, I feel like that just makes, it elevates the whole show. Mm -hmm. 
then I always appreciate when they pay attention to music within the context of the fantasy world and that like festivals would have had a lot of music and people in the community would have been a big part of that and it would have been important and real. It doesn't feel like an afterthought that they threw in. It feels like something built for the world. Yeah. And this is one of the big challenges of making fiction set in other, you know, other times, other places, other worlds. They can't just make what an actual medieval farming village would have played. Mm -hmm. They have to get the vibe right. They have to make us feel the right feeling for Mm -hmm. this harvest festival, or I guess it's like a new spring festival they're doing. But like, no, it's not the music that an actual medieval village would have played, but it sure has the vibes of a harvest festival. Yeah, like I very much noticed that because like, you know, being Irish, the thing I have come to expect from like medieval based fantasy is that they just kind of like do a vaguely Irish trad thing and they're like, okay, cool. And they're just like, <laughs> my mouth is completely blanked on every trad song. That's kind of weird. Because um, it's filled with Lauren Balfi's wonderful guitar strummings. But like, I very much noticed that this had like loads of different other like cultural influences other than just like Celtic traditional music. <laughs> um, not just in the music, but in the whole production design, in the costuming as well. Mm-hmm. It was very non-European in places. Um, you know, you can pick out some specific cultural influences, like Lan is fairly East Asian in his dress, but like only like in bits. He's not doing like an Obi Wan Kenobi where it's like, oh, that he's just wearing a kimono. Huh? Yeah, he's not. He's not walking around in like you know full samurai armor or anything. It's not like making it that. Uh, like stereotyped or obvious or anything. Yeah, mm-hmm. and a lot of the um the blouses and shirts on men and women have sort of like Chinese or Korean vibes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I got mm-hmm. a lot of like Mongolian steppe clothing vibes too, because they're all like mountain shepherds people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You also get kind of an overall like. It's kind of the Shire. We get kind of like a little English country town village kind of feeling from it as well. This is what they say at the beginning that like when the dragon broke the world, they like took parts of the world and mixed them around and rearranged everything and everything got mixed together. So of course it looks like this. Yeah. And like, I think that applies to the racial diversity as well. Mm -hmm. Which I mean, you know, like, I guess if you're like being like, well, actually like after hundreds or thousands of years after the breaking of the world like everyone would just be kind of all mixed race but like that doesn't feel good in like a real world context Mm -hmm. in the context of this is a show that exists in earth human society so like you know the like diversity and like very large range of skin colors just really works with all that and just everything just mashing together remix before we leave costuming i love all the skirt pants (laughs) my Favorite costuming item is Egwene's like sort of second, third costume. Like she wears it like the morning after she's like slept with Rand and has like mm-hmm. sort of hinted that she's going to break up with him. And like she goes out and like talks to him on a rock. Mm-hmm. And it was only as she was like sitting down on the rock to talk to him that I was like, "That's trousers!" And, like, <laughs> the, like the, the tartan pattern of her skirt like outfit, like combination with oh my god, oh, love it, so good. Yeah, yeah, really good. One thing I did notice as far as costuming goes, you see it in the very first shot of um, of Maureen like suiting up to go on her journey and you see it when she's like slinging spells. She's wearing like suspenders. Yeah. It's it's really interesting. And I was like, huh, 
like you wouldn't have ever expected to see that and it's like yeah that some it's like easier than a belt sometimes but it, it it's a kind of thing it's like only she's wearing that kind of like it, it it shows like you know the ice that i are clearly at like a higher like social level almost than anyone like you know her both her and lance clothes like they're not like as tattered or clearly worn in as everyone in two rivers is mm-hmm. like they're travel clothes but they don't feel like she's been wearing them for years and years like everyone else kind of has yeah 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 and actually speaking of like tattered and raggedy clothes i would like to talk about matt cawthon i like matt he's fun like specifically his like costuming because the like big lebowski vibes from his coat he's wearing a duster and it's also there's a part in the fight scene whenever like he's like where the fuck are my sister's father and like he runs off to get them and like his coat is like getting like caught in the doors like he trips over something and his coat just goes like flying and like he runs off like with his whole like ass back crack exposed just like (laughs) completely tumbled and it's like the way everything moves just like is so effective like this is like a absolute tragic disaster of an outfit and a person (laughs) (laughs) and it Um, gives each of the three boys a very different profile like Rand is shaped like a carrot. Um, <laughs> Perrin is shaped like a boulder, <laughs> and uh, Matt is shaped like a Christmas tree. There you go. <laughs> the three genders. <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. And like Matt, like well, because Matt is so like raggedy. Like you see with like his cuffs. I think they gave him fingerless gloves. Yeah, yeah, um, he has fingerless gloves. Which is a thing that we did in Oliver Twist to all the orphans to signify their orphanness. Um, and that they were little pickpockets, which, I mean, you know, mm. it's a handy shorthand and they've certainly deployed it for Matt here. Um, and then, like, I noticed that Rand and, and as well, like, his father, Tom, they're both, like, so clean. Yeah. They're so clean. I, I feel like that kind of goes hand in hand with them not actually living in the village either. Mm. Like, they're from outside. They're, they live in their little hut up on the hill or whatever. They're like the posh kids from the suburbs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, like, come into time to do their shopping. Mm-hmm. I mean, something about some of... I'm trying to remember. I think it's Rand's, like, shearling jacket felt like i was like wait that just feels like something i could go buy in a store now like i feel like i could go to gap (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like you're wearing an uggs coat rand oh yeah the the leather one with the sheepskin in the sea oh my god that coat breakdown have done such a good job with that coat like (laughs) it's like worn in all the right places oh my god it's so good i'm so proud of the textiles department and not just because i had a friend working in it okay (laughs) there was one other garment that i looked at and i was like i feel like i could go buy that at aeropostale or something um Mm -hmm. but when they're leaving Egwene has her like a hooded coat Mm. and when you see her just from the waist up and you can't see how long it is i'm like that's just a hoodie with like a shearling lining Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but that was the only moment I had like that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, just like in general, I think the costuming's done a really good job of just the, the cultural remixes mm-hmm. and, you know, taking things that feel otherworldly but highly relatable. Yeah. Otherworldly as in like in a different fantasy world, mm-hmm. not yeah. like yeah. otherworldly. Whoa. Well, <laughs> and you mentioned Matt before and also how Rand and Tam are so clean and uh, Matt's family is like the f- they're the filthiest people in the whole village like everyone else is cleaner mm-hmm. than these people it's almost comedic how they live in like their little like 
cartoon poor person shack with one single blanket and one single candle and they're all covered in get the charlie brown or the willy wonka bed it's like yeah they've got the grandpa show bed i will quibble that they definitely (laughs) have two beds because matt sleeps in one of them oh oh, yeah 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 so they took the willy wonka bed and they cut it in half um Mm -hmm. because they were they're divorced <laughs> yeah, like I did. I was definitely struck by uh, Matt's whole deal, and that's probably because it's just added to from the books. Um, like his, he's got a gambling addiction. He's got a dysfunctional family. He like sells stolen goods to the shady pe- peddler who walks through town. Um, like it's just like, oof, this boy, this damn, this boy. I I, I appreciate that in the context of like. Putting these four kids together. Four kids. And God, I'm gonna be saying four. Yeah, thank God, I'm gonna be saying. Thanks, Yu-Gi-Oh. Um, they all feel so different from each other. Like they're friends. They've known each other their whole lives, but like they still like even setting it from the very first episode. It's like I can understand like each of these four kids is gonna grow up to be like very, very different. Like as the show goes on, I mm-hmm. imagine. Yeah, you know the changes the dub made were just like, um, it- <laughs> sorry. Um, I like that Moiraine sort of hints at this. I mean, the, sh- the whole episode has been hinting at this, and then she just says it at the end, which is like, your lives are not going to be what you thought they were. And this has been an episode of people like struggling with the lives that they have um, and mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. much those are changing for them. And that that sense of disappointment as you grow into an adult and you're like, oh, all of these assumptions about my life that I had when I was a kid are not going to come true. And then how much, like, how, how, and then they take it to that next level, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, yeah. I think. Moraine does the buckle up buttercup <laughs> thing from Tumblr. Yeah, I like, I think, because, Max, you mentioned sort of at the start that, like, Rand is really the only person who leaves town without, like, leaving something behind, or... But Mm -hmm. I also think that out of everyone who has expectations of how their life is going to go, like, Rand has the most, like, expect... Because he, like, and he says that to Egwene whenever she's, you know, she's about to sort of confirm that she's, like, sort of breaking up with him to go do this job. And he's like, you know, this is how I wanted my house to be. This is how I wanted to have my wife. I wanted Mm -hmm. to have, like, children. And then she's like... (laughs) He was being a real stinker about he that. He was. Because he, he confirms he knows that she's going to, you know, decide to be trained as the next wizard by Nynaeve. And he's like, oh, I could have had a family and kids running through the woods. And it's just like, if you know, like, he's clearly, you know, whinging about it. And like, knowing it's making her feel bad is like some sort of therapy for him. It's just like, he, he I don't want to say he feels like the most coddled of the kids, but it it feels like he's kind of had a very easy life compared to them. I mean, everyone compared to Matt, obviously. But I don't know. This is definitely like a thing that will be expanded on further as we see more in the show. But I don't know. I mean, be fair with Rand. He was country engaged to this woman. Like, yeah. basically since they were children. It's pretty clear that the families expect them to get married. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, and she did have sex with him right before telling him all this. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, like, what I very pointedly noticed is, like, and actually, like, your point about their families wanting them to get married makes a lot of sense, because I just realized that, like, the reason that they started talking was because, like, their mom made them do the dishes together. Yeah. She was like, do the dishes together, run an egg way, be alone together. <laughs> but, like, 
there's that scene when they're doing the dishes together and he's like asking her like hey how did your ceremony go blah 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 like you could talk to me about it you could tell me if it was good or bad and it seems like he's trying to get her to open up to him and like tell him her problems and like why has she been avoiding him all day and then she sort of says stuff and she's about to open up she's like yeah like it's just it's something that Nynaeve said she and then he just interrupts her with a kiss Mm -hmm. like she was about to like tell him the thing that was bothering her and he's like actually no no i'm just horny like i'm kissing you now i'm gonna do a funny pocket strawberry mm-hmm. and then we're gonna bone down and i was like rand what the fuck my dude listen to your girl's problems maybe that's fair i actually had a, the most problem with him when he kept pushing her to talk about what had happened because mm. it's like mm-hmm. dude she already told you that she can't tell you about it you know women aren't yeah. supposed to talk about it to men why do you keep pressing her like leave it alone at the same time too from like the very first scene we see with Egwin, i don't know if the women tell the other women about it when they go through the ceremony because like i mean obviously you'd be hooting and hollering and screaming if you were shoved into a river rapids but, like, she seemed genuinely surprised when Nynaeve shoved her into the river. Like, she was like, oh, I got this nice braid. Ah! Yeah, she didn't seem to know. Yeah, I assume this is the part of the ceremony they do not tell you about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I assume the you don't actually know anything about it except for the ceremonial hair braiding because everybody starts braiding their hair after it happens. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, I, I assume nobody but adult women who survive knows about what happens. That does imply there's ones that don't survive. Yeah, do they have a fail-safe? It's like, how is, how is the ceremony? Oh, it's good. I swallowed a fit. Like, huh? <laughs> I mean, I I think the implication is that sometimes women don't come back because of Edwin's dad's reaction when she comes in. He's so worried for her. Yeah. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah. Because huh. like, yeah, she comes back and everyone like starts clapping, which, I mean, is what you should be doing when you see Egwene. But, like, <laughs> yeah, everyone is really <laughs> proud of her for returning. Yeah, and because of how long it took her to get back, her dad was worried. Yeah, I thought the implication was, I thought maybe you weren't coming back. Mm -hmm, Yeah. mm -hmm. Which which I guess does kind of explain how pushy Rand was being, considering maybe there is like this sort of air of like caution and concern whenever a woman in town goes through this. Because like, if people know, sometimes they don't come back. He's like, oh God, it's like, can you tell me what happened, please? Are they hurting you? It's like, yeah, because like he was looking at her arm when she was washing the dishes and there was like a cut on it. And he was like, looking at the mm-hmm. cut on her arm yeah um one thing th- this is like i guess tangentially related to costuming um going back a tiny bit first of all i didn't know what a trollic was until i watched the show whenever we named this podcast yeah i was like in my head i don't know what i even thought they were like in my head i'm like oh are they gonna be like little small gremlin guys <laughs> no <laughs> um but it, the, speaking of, you know, fantasy television and film, they give me such vibes of the orcs and the Urukai from Lord of the Rings film in that all the Trollocs are different. There are not all these weird horned wolfmen. Like, there's a pig dude. They're, they look like different mammals, kind of, like, turned more fearsome. And I really, really like it. It's, like, a very cool bit of, like... Uh, uh, like creature design and makeup that they all look completely different but they're still like these believable hulking brutes that like they're not it's not like guttural roar some of them are like squealing and shrieking and like they all feel like this like really terrifying mishmash of like you know like the dark forces kind of I really really like the yeah. Trollocs yeah the Trollocs were cool but I did complain when the Eyeless appeared I told Tom I was like who is this Voldemort ass motherfucker <laughs> I know he looks just like Voldemort <laughs> I, on my 
He has such luscious lips. <laughs> They're just yeah. so. Yeah, he's been he's been moisturizing. He's, he has some Burt's Bees on so there. So well moisturized. It's like when a person goes blind, sometimes they start to focus on their other senses. They pay more attention, and so you know your hearing can get better. Uh, yeah, so when they you get lose lip your, filler. When you lose your eyes, your lips become more gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, it does happen to Daredevil. So do, do, do. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. Maybe like, do you think this like fade is like sort of like very high considering like murderal beauty standards? Are we gonna see like some others, and they're just gonna be like absolutely just like Gaga with it? I want the mouthless one who has like anime eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I like the cool bone horse too. I hate horses, but like you know, I'm always a skeletal horse is fine I by me. Don't think I noticed it was a skeleton horse actually. I thought it was just wearing armor. I, I don't think it is. I think it's like a horse that has like a bone like cowling over its like snout area. But again, it's like Game of Thrones level darkness you see the guy in. So you can you can't really tell unless you turn the gamma way up on the screen or yeah. whatever. But it looks cool enough. He, you know, he looks th- that's like maybe like one of the most like fantasy tropey things in the episode. It's just like, oh, look at this creepy guy on a horse watching the town silently from the woods. It's like, all right, I get your deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean that's like straight out of the um, the Nazgul arriving yeah. in the Shire, right? Like, mm, yeah, like I've seen this before. Move, move it along. Move it along. <laughs> There's some discernible influences in this show. Yeah. Speaking of move it along, what are the sort of final things we want to talk about here? Like, what have we not talked about that's like important to talk about? The overgrown city. Yeah. There's the shot very early on in the show where we get a big landscape and we can see all these like overgrown towers and they look at first you know we see a bunch of like tall rock towers because we're in the mountains and then you start seeing like hang on there are windows in those (laughs) those are skyscrapers yeah because at first they look like that the the region of china with the up mountains yes that was exactly what i was thinking of yeah and like your brain is like oh yes it's the region of china with oh no it's i got windows and yeah that's a building okay so i i mentioned earlier I know nothing about this. I'm baby. I didn't know this is purportedly a post-apocalyptic story. Um, And when they say breaking the world, it seems like it's literal. But the main thing this reminded me of is a game uh, called Horizon Zero Dawn for the PlayStation 4. And I'll post this image in here for those who aren't familiar, which which is a very, very, very similar thing. Um, at least like world design. And I, I can't imagine they des- they explain this how it is in the books, but the image I've just posted, that's kind of like what the landscape is. You get this like, you know, very beautiful, like overgrown world. But like you see is like, are those like, you know, stone towers? No, that's an overgrown building. Um, actually, yeah, the image I posted is like extremely Literally, similar. So I've, I've just posted a screen cap from the episode on like, this is the same image. <laughs> but yep. I mean... <laughs> For Horizon, I mean, this is going into, like, spoilers for, what, like, a five-year-old PlayStation game, but Horizon also kind of dabbles in the main character is sort of a reincarnation of someone from the past before the world got broken, and not the same character, but there also was a character from the past who was, like, the dude who broke the world, which is like, huh. So I would would wager, you know, that's a very vague overview of it, but I would definitely wager that, like parts of that game were inspired by this part type of world building. But it's it's a really cool thing to kind of keep in the back of your head of like, huh, this is maybe our world or some world like ours that got all scrambled up and here we are now. Mm, mm, mm. And they don't do anything with it in this episode, right? 
but it's just like, hey, d- did you notice <laughs> well, the they skyscrapers? Have to, they have to set up some of that stuff, like the shot of the emblem on Tam's sword, which is just there. Mm-hmm. We're just like, all right, we're going to oh, leave cool, that there cool for crane. later. I mean, <laughs> the fact that Rand's the sheep herder father has a really nice katana <laughs> and knows how to use it. Mm-hmm. That was I so want, sexy, I wonder, by the way. I wonder what that means. <laughs> that, that, that sword <laughs> fight in that one scene was like, oh, God, it was so cool. Like, Tom was always like, yeah, like, you know, hot dad. And then he, like, wrenched the sword out of his scabbard and we're like, oh, my God. He was Bruce Bolton, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, he was. Uh, I looked him up after we watched it. He was Bruce Bolton from Game of Thrones. Mm, oh, right. Okay. I was just, I was listening to him and I was like, is he from here? He's not. He's from Downside. <laughs> <laughs> do I know him? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If we want to do anime power rankings, though, like <laughs> after we see Tam like fighting pretty effectively with this Trolloc, then we see Lan with a very mm-hmm. similar sword just yeah. going to town, yeah. just tearing <laughs> he, through him. He cuts one's head in half like hot dog style. Just completely. It's fucking It's like sick. Trunks showing up in Dragon Ball, just like pulls out a sword and just <laughs> going to town. It's great. Just the, 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 the fight choreography is so satisfying. We've said it before, the movement. Mm-hmm. It's, it's movement yeah. to me. It's movement. The last sort of important thing that I want to talk about is the, like, the very end of the episode. Um, like Just before she starts saying the Wheel of Time turns and you just come and pass, and I start like skanking in my <laughs> living room because like I'm losing my mind. Um, she tells the kids they've got to go. You know, she does the main expository speech of the episode and says, here's the Dragon Reborn. It's one of you guys. We got a points. And like, I very much noticed in that scene, there was like a, like in other fantasy things, I have come to expect like a, a sort of like, and the hero nods solemnly and is like, I will do this thing. I will leave my town and save the world. My grim duty. But like, they just like stare blankly and like shell shockedly into the camera. And then we just cut to them riding on horseback out of town. I feel like there's a notable lack of consent to them leaving. Mm -hmm. And I feel that that's like significant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like it stood out to me. I don't know how much of this is me reading in stuff that I know from the books, but it felt a bit like... You basically can't say no to an Aes Sedai. Mm. Like if one of these women tells you you have to leave or your whole village and everyone you love will be destroyed, then you go. Like <laughs> you don't argue, you don't. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and you know, they're seeing this army of several hundred Trollocs marching down the mountain towards them. But I, I agree with you, Sarah. The scene, it, it, the scene felt protracted. It felt like if they had a couple more minutes to like more, maybe like Moraine and Lan have to really hammer in. It's like, okay, yeah, stay here. You're going to die. Everyone here is going to be killed. And they they say as much, but like, it, it really does feel like there could have been a scene or two in between them being like, what? And then like, you know, badass heroes getting on horseback to leave on their grim journey. It, it, it did feel like there was like something missing there almost. But see, I, I liked that. Like the discomfort it gave me. I was mm. like, this is interesting. Mm. This is spicy. And it does, it keeps the kids from feeling heroic yet, which they frankly don't have any right to. Yeah. Yeah, like they've just been kidnapped. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or they've been Aes Sedai-napped. Wait, no, she's the one doing the napping. They've all done brave things fighting off the Trollocs, but like none of them are heroes Mm -hmm. yet. And so it's not like casting them in a heroic way. Yeah. And also, not for nothing, every one of these kids is traumatized from the night before. Yeah. And like... 
when you're traumatized, you, you'll just go where people lead you. You do what they say because uh-huh. you can't make decisions for yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just sort of sit there like, okay, mm-hmm. and you go where they push. That's a very, very fair point. If if I had to witness all that and like someone's like, hey, we I can make that not happen. Come with me. I'd be like, okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Can we go? <laughs> I want to leave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Good show. Good show. <laughs> Max, did, did you have anything you wanted to say about the, like, magic system and comparing it to, like, video oh, games? Oh, the main thing, there's been so little revealed about it in this first episode. The main thing that stuck out to me, the magic is called Source in this world, correct? It's in this episode, sure, okay, yeah. the, Let's go The with first that. thing we hear, I, I think Moraine calls it. Or no, uh, the, the Red Cloak Lady is like, you've touched the Source. And that, in and of itself, just reminded me, this game called Divinity Original Sin. Where the magic system in that, it's not necessarily the same magic system, um, but it's called Source. And I guess the main sort of comparison there is like, it's, I guess, similar to the Force in that it's kind of like all around you. And I, if, if I were to take the time to do it, I would draw a comparison between Moraine very clearly drawing Source from everywhere around her to do her cool magic and like physically yeah. drawing you know, bricks out of the walls to throw at the Trollocs. And in those games, the whole thing with magic is like you're using the environment around you more so in like, oh, there's a barrel of oil. If I attack that, then I can cast a fire spell. And, you know, if there's a puddle of water, I can cast ice and freeze it. But it's a very like surface level sort of thing. And I feel like I don't really have as many pieces on the board for me to like draw further conclusions from there. But maybe in episode two, if we get more on and I'll, I'll start to unlock my gamer brain and, and bring something really <laughs> exciting next week. Who knows? <laughs> Uh-huh, uh-huh. You'll, you'll find and emulate and play the Wheel of Time video game from 1999, and then you'll be all knowing. That's right. Oh. I found it this afternoon. <laughs> that might be my research. Oh, my God. <laughs> he can't help himself. So, yeah, predictions time. Uh, I think this is all you, Max. Yeah, Um. okay, I've said it. We were hanging on your every word. I'm writing these down. Okay, I'm sa- I'm confident that Nynaeve is still alive. That's one. Um. Huh, what? I... I feel like just through osmosis from the name of the podcast, Everybody Hates Rand, I'm pretty sure Rand is the dragon reborn. Like that, I guess that's sort of a prediction, sort of like I feel like I've heard enough about him more than any other character to be able to guess that. That's my fault. I'd like to see Moraine train Egwin because we know that Egwin has that in her a little bit, like with that one scene of her and Nynaeve on the bridge listening to the wind and she's like, oh, sounds fucked up. Um, and, you know, Nynaeve being the wisdom trained by the previous wisdom, I feel like the wisdoms is a kind of you're in tune with magic in some manner of speaking. Um, but I feel like if I were to draw a comparison to the greatest TV show ever made, Avatar The Last Airbender, <laughs> it feels like Egwene <laughs> is going to be maybe like Egwene and Rand are the ones who use magic and like both Matt and Perrin are the Sokka in that they don't have maybe they don't have magical ability, but like maybe Lan will train them how to use weapons and Moraine trains the other two to use magic. And I feel like you could definitely get some cool sort of like, you know, there's your party of six right there. You get half magic users, half half melee users. Um, but my main my main, you know, my main very confident prediction is Nynaeve is alive and will play a part in the future. Hmm. Cool. I will be awarding you points at the end of the series. Oh, good. Yay. Tremendous. Maybe I'll get a trophy. <laughs> you will get a trophy. Yes. I'll come up with something. Wait, yeah, the trophy will be the Charles cosplay making you. Tremendous. All right. Shall we move on to 
our next segment. Spoiler zone. Never mind the spoilers in mm-hmm. which the uh, right. the limiters are off. Mm-hmm. We can all unleash our true power levels. All right. Put the, uh, put the Kill Bill <laughs> sirens in, Sarah. <laughs> 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 All right, gamers. Uh, what actually? What uh, did I have? Because I feel like I did sort of, like I've, I've edged around so much that I feel like I've kind of already talked about a lot of this. I was just gonna say we talked about the race and the casting, and Max pointed out how Rand sticks out, and actually how that fits perfectly with the story. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um. I I liked how they um like the first chapters of the books are totally Rand's perspective. Like the whole thing is Rand's. perspective perspective we don't see that fight happen in the books rand arrives afterwards and everyone is like yeah the town's super fucked up dude moiraine killed a whole bunch of trollocs and rand is like whoa (laughs) cool (laughs) fucked up if true and uh so this does a good job of like spreading the point of view around across all these characters and making it all feel much more even hmm yeah, and actually, like speaking of book stuff, I noticed that we didn't get that scene of Rand like dragging his dad back to town, which I feel like is an important scene, um, because his dad's like having a weird dream and like doing exposition in his sleep. So I I do think that we might get that later, mm-hmm. like like later in the season they're gonna be like Rand, I think it's you. You're the Dragon Reborn, and he's gonna like flash back to the exposition his dad was saying in his sleep. Mm-hmm. Is is that like something related to do with the Trolloc poisoning? Since the Trollocs are like from the forces of darkness or whatever, is like that give you some sort of weird insight? No, he's just like feverish and ranting. Okay, yeah, right. yeah, he's like, ranting. He's just like passed out. He's he's, he's off on a wee run. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean the the reason everybody hates Rand is because Rand in this first book has a major like Frodo problem. Mm. He's doing something really important, but it's mostly like internal and mostly involves him like suffering and being annoying and boring. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. See, I hate Rand because he's a war criminal. Probably. I don't remember that part. <laughs> he does work. I could I can't like think of any specific. No, I can't think of many specific. Work. Yeah, no, I'm thinking about them. I mean, all my favorite Gundam characters were criminals. So listen, whatever. we love a war criminal. Um, <laughs> Speaking of criminals, I loved the little bit of foreshadowing they did for Pat and Fane. Okay, is is it's that like, bracelet it's... important? No, forget the bracelet. Okay. But <laughs> Fane, the the bit where like the Trollocs are attacking and Fane just sort of casually is like. Oh, he like sets not his my drink problem. on, <laughs> okay. and like, yep, and and just like slips away. Well, and he manages to turn on a dime with the like smiley, pleasant demeanor, and then like have it be sinister mm-hmm. that, even before that scene. Fantastic acting. That actor has the longest teeth I've ever seen on a person, <laughs> and I- he weaponizes them. So yes, well. I was wondering if those were prosthetics because because he weaponizes mm. them so much. Okay, I'm glad that he's important because he seemed very, very important for a character who p- shows up to town once a year to sell some lanterns or whatever. Mm. And I really like because the Matt selling him stolen things like twofold establishes one that he's shifty and also that Matt's shifty. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that was really good. And um, like actually, yeah, speaking of Matt, I wanted to mention about for him and also for Perrin, all the stuff that they're adding to them currently will make will just like recontextualize their further stories to be a lot more effective i think i agree i i I really i like everything they did with matt i think matt's no 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 notes it's perfect (laughs) yeah um 
The Perrin one, I still feel like they shouldn't have made, I mean, maybe they're going to do something really interesting with it down the line, but I still feel like they shouldn't have made Layla his wife. Yeah, I think it's, it's important because his, you know, of his future arc involves him being a very, like, violent person and, like, being Mm -hmm. very, very, very afraid of his own violence. And, like, in the, I felt, I always felt like in the books, it was a bit, like, limp. Yeah, yeah. I suspect that they had the same problem I had, which is that, you know, Perrin is going to do a bad thing in the books. In the future, he does a bad thing and then he feels bad about it forever. But it's like not that bad a thing. Yeah. As the reader, your perspective is that it wasn't a bad thing at all. Yeah. And so that guilt that he has for the entire series and really motivates his character just doesn't work. So I assume they did this in order to uh, to give him some more compelling guilt fodder. Yeah. But the other thing is that in the books, his family all gets killed. So why didn't they just keep that? Do his family... I don't think his family get killed right now. I think that get, they get killed later whenever he goes to come back to the Two Rivers and then he comes back and everyone's like, oh, dude, your whole family died. They're buried under this tree. Go mourn them. And he's like, just like breaks again. Yeah. So like, yeah, I don't know. We assume that uh, Layla is going to show up in the wolf dream, right? Like, they're, oh, they're yeah. going to bring her back that. For makes that. so much sense. <laughs> I had forgotten about the wolf dream. I've forgotten so much about those books. <laughs> yeah, because I was thinking, I was like, oh, yeah, like, if, if Rand has flashbacks to, like, his dad doing sleep exposition, then Perry can have flashbacks to, like, him having his shotgun wedding with Layla. Um, but actually, if she was in Teleran Rio, that would make sense. Oh, God, that's going to be so cool. Yeah. Like, I'd trust the way they do things for them to do, like, the dream world. Like, Yeah. I Between the way they handled the source and the way they handled the skyscrapers, I was like, okay, yeah, I, I have confidence in them to pull off Teleron Mule. Yeah. 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 I noticed they did not uh, explain what Taverin means. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which I assume they were, like, too much exposition. <laughs> we're just going to drop this word here and we'll explain it later. And I, I noticed because, like, because Amazon have their little, like, sidebar of trivia, um, and, like, they explain what, I think they explain what Sidene is in the scene with the Red Sisters. And mm. they explain that, like, whenever Maureen's doing healing, they're like, oh, healing's really hard. Like, some people can't do it. And, like, they explain a lot about, like, magic and the source. And, like, they do not explain what Taviran is in the um, the trivia sections. Um, yeah. I know y'all mentioned earlier that the book, the first book, like, starts completely differently than how the show starts. Mm. Is that something that can yeah. be explained yeah, like- now? Or is that something that, like, the show's going to get to? Um, so the Tongo. I don't know. If, I don't know if the show is going to get to it, but the books open with a prologue during which the dragon, like the original one, uh, goes crazy and destroys the world. Okay. Actually, there's um, they have a little animated short in. It's, oh, yeah. I I like because I knew it was there because I'd seen it on Twitter and like my timeline had been talking about it. But like, I think if you, it's not like in the list of episodes i think like if you are watching the episode on amazon prime and then you tab over to like in the episode menu itself if you tab over to like bonus content then there's Mm -hmm. like a two minute like animated short it's really nicely animated and it shows like 
it shows Luther in like killing his family or like the aftermath of him killing his family and like there's like a nice sedai like explaining that this is what the dragon did and so like they have included sort of that um but like it's in a weird like under three menus to find it it's kind of yeah. weird <laughs> i'm looking it's at really the main short page you should go find it I'm looking at the yeah, main page, I mean, and there's like, if you scroll down, there's like seven bonus things, and one is like, bonus, the Wheel of Time, Moraine's Quest, and bonus, the Wheel of Time, explaining the Dragon Reborn. So it's like, you just gotta scroll down on the main page, but it's like, yeah, like a minute I, each. It's it's not, I don't think it's that one. I think, because I watched the bonus, the Wheel of Time, explaining the Dragon Reborn, and it's like a, sort of like a anime-style clip show of the episodes, like with narration over it, but like, mm. there's a different animated one inside the episode itself. Huh. And I, like, I'll see if I can find it and link it because it is really nice and it's like nice to watch. Um, Do you remember back when a TV show used to just be a TV show with all the things that you had to watch contained time. within the runtime of the show? <laughs> I mean, you, okay, I feel like if this kind of thing had existed when I was writing my first dissertation, I would have like, I would have written it about this. Like the way that like lore is constructed and like mm-hmm. fed to you is like. You know, it's like when Wheelie Time has the map in the front, when Game of Thrones has the dictionary of like all the houses in the back, and it's like the, the like information surrounding a story in a fantasy world and how it's like so interesting to me. And like this, I'm not sure if I like it. I don't like. I feel like I hate it, but but that might just because it's new to me and I'm not like ready for it yet. I'm just like I dislike being force fed lore. I already know, and I'm stubborn. I think if I were like a teenager, if I were in high school and. I was really into this. I would devour everything that they made about it. Um, mm. But I'm mm. an adult with many things to do. And so <laughs> I, yeah. I, I don't have time to click every menu and track down every animated short. Mm. Well, I mean, mm. this is like, I've seen a bunch of people on Twitter talking about this for uh, tabletop RPGs, for video games. They're like, okay, yes, when I was young, I loved stuff that I could get a hundred hours of play out of or whatever. But now I'm an adult with children of my own and a job, and I want something I can play in like six hours. (laughs) Yeah. It's the curse of content. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, Um, irony though, since we are making like a two-hour podcast about this 40-minute long TV show. It won't be once we cut it down. I feel like for, for this crowd though, I feel like that's like on par it's about right i don't know about you guys but i think i'm done yeah me too yeah that good. was that's like, all i have to say yeah that's podcast actually i did have a thing that i wanted to end this episode with which is a severe like content warning for next episode mm. oh it's boy. has because oh, yeah, you've seen it yeah i watched it and like like i had to like look away it's, it's got some like very like gory I wasn't expecting it to be that like horrific and like I feel like next episode 2 is is like a horror movie whereas this one was like an action fantasy next episode next episode is very horror and I just wanted to like let people know okay. that Bef- so like- me talking about this the the violence being effective but not gratuitous I'm going to just egg on face <laughs> next week for me like next week like there's some Yoshikage Kira shit and I'm like oof Aww. Very excited to talk about it. Yada yada. Um, As the podcast comes to a close, we'd like to take a moment and plug all our social medias and other podcasts. 
You can find Sarah on Twitter at Sarah McCostumes. You can find Tom on Twitter at Mecca underscore though. You can find Nina on Twitter at Nina underscore aka underscore noodle. And you can find me on Twitter at MaxiBajillion. In addition to this podcast, you can find us on many others. Sarah's podcasts include The Kvoth Killer Chronicles, a limited-run Name of the Wind podcast discussing the titular novel, which can be found on Twitter at Killer underscore Kvoth. Next is Never Believe It, which is a Naruto D-Watch podcast found on Twitter at NarutoHead underscore Band. Sarah is also a part of Tintatin Tin Tintatin, a podcast about the Tintin series of comics. That show can be found on Twitter at Tintin underscore Podcast. Lastly, both Sarah and I are part of Pod of Greed, a Yu-Gi-Oh! podcast found on Twitter at Pod of Greed Cast. Tom and Nina run Mobile Suit Breakdown, a Gundam podcast focused on research, context, and analysis of the series. That is on Twitter at Gundam Podcast. Lastly, I am part of two other podcasts, the first of which is Wow Cool Robot, another Gundam podcast focused more on making jokes about suit, which can be found on Twitter at Wow Cool Podcast. And finally, my other other podcast is Slappers Only, a video game music showdown podcast found on Twitter at Slappers Only Pod. All right, listeners, thank you for tuning into our podcast. You should mind the content warnings, but not the Trollocs. There you go. Hey. Hey. We are Nevermind the Trollocs. Thank you for listening. Hey.